The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like for you to open your Bibles now to the Old Testament book of Jeremiah, chapter 6. Today we continue our study of the unity of believers. And in our context, the way that we're looking at this is that we're not discussing unity among believers all across the world, but we're speaking of the unity of the church, which is local and is made up of people that meet in the same location. We are of the same body of Christians that functions as one cohesive group. The Apostle Paul taught in Ephesians that the church is to be unified in the Holy Spirit, one body with the same Lord, holding on to the same faith, practicing the same baptism, obeying the Father, one Father God, who manifests himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And the Apostle says that the work of the church is to produce sanctification in believers, and we are to build each other up in the faith and in the knowledge of the Word of God. And then when that is done, the fullness of Christ manifests itself in unity, that we are alike. It manifests itself in maturity, that is, we are spiritually developed, and then it manifests itself in morality. We are conformed to the image of Christ. Now, in this message, we continue our theme of doctrinal unity. And whenever we say unity, the underlying foundation is always what we believe about the doctrines of the faith. Our unity is in the faith. And that, of course, requires us to know the faith because, again, to know the word is to know Christ. Now, I've used this uh, Old Testament text in Jeremiah as a jumping off point for our discussion. Uh, I'm not going to read this entire text again. I think it would be good for you to read it and to connect it with last week's message. I just want to call your attention to one verse, and this is Jeremiah 6:16. Thus saith the Lord, stand ye in the ways and see, and ask for the old paths, where is the good way, and walk therein and ye shall find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk therein. Now, Jeremiah told God's people that they must ask for the old paths, that they must return to the God of their fathers and to the precepts of their laws. And if they would do this, they would find rest for their souls. But the people were away from God, and they said, we will not walk in those ways. And folks, I would submit to you that this is the critical problem that we face in our churches today, that people will not walk in the old paths. They will not mind the unchangeable, infallible doctrines of God's word, and rather they choose to walk in their own ways. And this stubbornness that people have of, we will not walk therein, that is the answer that a fool gives to the instructions of Scripture. And so we have a generation of religious fools that has a standard of self-righteousness that is never good enough for God. Their inclusiveness and their intolerance of all evils leaves them, as the proverb says, there is a generation that are pure in their own eyes and yet is not washed from their filthiness. 
Now, I hope in these messages that we've made some progress towards doctrinal clarity. We, we've been discussing the essential doctrines of God's word and of our faith. And we're just looking at a few of these doctrines because it is impossible for us to touch on every detail of the faith in these few messages. And so I'm just mentioning a few doctrines that we can't surrender and still be called a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in the last message, I had time to discuss two essential doctrines. I want to mention these again, and, and then we'll conclude with three more. And again, these do not exhaust everything there is for us to learn. Now, in the last message, we, we began by discussing the path of declaration. And the path of declaration is based upon this often used statement in the scriptures, thus saith the Lord. When the Lord speaks, we must drop everything that we're doing and sit up and pay attention to what he says. This is the creator who speaks. This is the Lord of heaven and earth who speaks. He is the almighty. And the pathway by which God speaks is his holy word. This is the path of the Bible. It is the path of the inspired, infallible word of God. And this is the path that says that scripture is our only rule of faith and practice. This is the path that says that everything that we need to know about life and living and salvation and service and fellowship with God, everything that God wants us to know about him and his purposes is found in the pages of Scripture. The Bible is the fully complete and only revelation that's given by God. Well, do I mean that all that there is to know about God is found in the Bible. No, I'm saying that all that God wants you to know about him and all that you need to know about him in this present life is revealed in Scripture. When we reach heaven, we'll find out so much more about God. But for now, it is impossible to know and understand more about God than what we read in the Scripture because this is the Holy Spirit's way of revealing God's truth. You could never know God completely by the human mind, and so your mind is maxed out by Scripture. And because the Word is the maximum revelation that we can receive, the Word is enough by itself to be the textbook for every sermon, for every Bible lesson, for every insight into theology. Now, we need not and we must not do what many churches do and that is, they put the Bible down and they ignore it and they substitute their wisdom for God's. Sweet homilies are spoken and taken from books that are uninspired sources. And so they will not walk in the old paths. But in this church, we have nothing to preach but the Bible. This is God's word. This is his revelation. And nothing that I can say is better than what God said. We believe the word. We believe the Genesis account of creation. We believe it took six days, just as God said. We believe in angels and we believe in miracles. We believe that there was a worldwide flood and we believe that Moses parted the Red Sea. And we believe that David killed a giant and we believe that Elijah went to heaven in a chariot of fire. We believe every word of the scriptures is true and the stories that we read are not allegories. They're not myths. They are not fables. This is the inspired word of God that's spoken to the minds of men who recorded it 
for the salvation of all generations until the Lord returns. So we're not going to compromise any of it. The truth of the Holy Scriptures is essential to our faith. And without it, we can't know God. We can't be pleasing to God. We can't be saved by God. There is no unity without the word. This is the path of declaration. Well, next, we looked at the path of deity. We also believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was very God of very God. He was 100 percent human and 100 percent divine. And so we believe and we affirm that Christ is the only way to heaven. There aren't multiple ways. There aren't multiple gods. And it's not up to any person to choose the path that he wants to take and then expect that he will find God at the end of that path. There is only one salvation, and it's in the name of Jesus Christ. We believe that Jesus was God manifest in the flesh. We believe that he was full of grace and truth and that he came to this earth to bear the sins and the guilt of his people. And we believe that he is the savior of our souls and he alone is worthy to be praised. Jesus wasn't just a good man. He wasn't just an excellent teacher or an exemplary moral example. He was certainly all of that. But he is prophet, priest and king. And he bears those offices as the one and only true God. He is the Jehovah God of the Old Testament. And he is one with the Father in the new. We will never compromise the truth of the deity of Christ. Now, the scriptures tell us that there is no one who is a child of God who doesn't fully affirm the deity of Jesus Christ. So those two doctrines, declaration and deity, that's the beginning of what we consider foundational. We can't be Christians without without believing these doctrines. But there is more to believe. There is another essential. And the third that I'd like to speak to you about is the path of death. This doctrine is the doctrine of death. And the death that I'm speaking of is the death of Christ. The fact that the Son of God became man and died, that is essential. And it's not merely that he was a man that died. It's not just that he died on a cross. It's not just those things that make him special. Because all people die. Thousands died on crosses. Christ's death was more because his death was atonement for sin. The doctrine of death is the foundational doctrine of atonement. And atonement was achieved by Christ shedding his blood and giving his life in satisfaction to the wrath of God against sin. Well, there is much to know on this subject. This is a very broad and deep subject. And if you're interested in an in-depth analysis from nearly, nearly every conceivable angle, then I would suggest that you get Arthur Pink's book, The Satisfaction of Christ. And there you can learn about the nature of the atonement, the design of the atonement, the efficacy of the atonement, its application, its results, its effects, its extent. And there you can learn why the atonement is so important to our faith. And all of that is drawn from the scriptures. There is much to know. And so many people are confused about the atonement. And many reject the atonement without even knowing they reject it. Now, I'm not speaking of those that have never claimed Christ, who never said that they were believers, because we're not expecting that non-Christians, unbelievers, would come back to a path that they've never walked. 
No, there are many in the Christian faith who unknowingly reject Christ's atonement because they try to satisfy God themselves. Now, if you have a doctrine that depends on the activity of man in any way for salvation, Christ's atonement is rejected. If you think that your good works will help save you or keep you saved, you reject Christ's atonement. What does the atonement do? The atonement is the satisfaction for sin. All of us are sinners, and every part of us, we are depraved. Isaiah says that from the crown of our head to the sole of our feet, there's nothing good in us. Every faculty is stained with sin. Scripture teaches there is none righteous, that there is no good work that comes from our heart. We're sinful and we're separated from God. And even worse, the word says that we are dead in trespasses and sin. And because the Bible says such things about us, this is good reason for self-enthralled, this self-enthralled society to reject the Bible. Now, the atonement of Christ says that Christ came to do something about this helplessness of our depravity, that he came to lift us out of sin and to remove the hostility between us and God. The atonement is the reconciling factor. And reconciliation comes because the barrier that keeps us from God is removed by the work of Christ. It's impossible for us to remove that barrier ourselves. And if we think that we can, if we think that anything that we do, whether it's a good work or whether it's even faith itself, if we believe that that can take away the hostility, then we reject Christ's atonement as the only means of satisfying God for our sin. But the truth of the atonement is that Christ alone satisfied God, that he satisfied God by taking our sins upon him. Our sins were imputed to Christ. And that means that they were charged to Christ as if he did them. And Jesus took those sins to the cross. And then in his suffering, he paid the penalty for us breaking God's perfect law. That penalty is death. And Christ's death paid the penalty. Now understand that the penalty for sin is not just our physical death. Christians and non-Christians alike die Physical death is one of the results of sin, but a much greater result of it is spiritual death. And without Christ's atonement, spiritual death is eternal separation from God in a lake of fire that burns forever. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid the penalty of spiritual death. Christ is God, and only God can do this. Now, if we take away the doctrine of the deity of Christ that we discussed in point two, then you can't have atonement for spiritual death in point three, because only God can do this. Only God could endure infinite suffering and an eternal hell. And so when someone says, well, I must be good or God will cast me into hell, he rejects Christ's atonement because it's only Christ's perfect obedience that can satisfy God for sin. But we need to go even further than this and add another qualification. We must state that Christ's death is substitutionary, that it was in the place of the sinner, so that the sins of the sinner were literally placed on Christ, that they were literally imputed to Christ, so that Christ's death fully and finally satisfied God for our sins. 
And this is what we believe. We believe that Christ's death was fully substitutionary and not hypothetically substitutionary. Now, that may sound a little confusing, so let me explain what it means. There are many who believe that Christ's death covers all sins of all people and that all people have their sins paid for in the death of Christ, but his death stands good only for those that believe. And that is the most popular belief today. And people think that believing this way is a way to make God as good as he can possibly be. That what God wants to do, he wants to save everybody. And so that Christ died potentially to save everybody if they would believe. That is hypothetical atonement. Now, an immediate problem should pop into your head. And that is if God is good and God wants to save everybody, then why doesn't he? What prevents God from saving everybody? Is it Satan? Well, if that's true, then Satan is more powerful than God. Is it other evil angels or is it all the angels, evil angels put together? Does that stop a a person from being saved? Well, if so, then they're more powerful than God. Well, then is it you? Can you prevent God from saving you if God wants to? Well, if that's true, then you are more powerful than God. But the truth is, there is no one who wants to be saved until God works in their heart to bring them to salvation. You remember this problem of depravity? All are dead in trespasses and sin. And so how does a person who is dead in sin, one who is blinded by Satan, one who is in love with the world and with the world's system and in love with self and makes self his own God, how does that person come to Christ? Well, there's only one way. Jesus explained it in John 64, uh, 6 rather, 44 and 45. John 6, 44 and 45, Jesus said, no man can come to me except the father which has sent me draw him and I will raise him up at the last day. Look at the absolutes as we read that. I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets and they shall be all taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the father cometh unto me. What does that tell you? Well, it tells you that everyone who comes to Christ is brought to him by the Father. Everyone that hears and learns from the Father will come to Christ. And so who decides who will be saved? You or is it God the Father? Then further in John 17, Jesus said that he gives life to all who are given to him by the Father. He prayed to the Father before his death. John 17, verses 2 and 3, Jesus prayed, As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Now, this scripture tells us that Christ died for those that were given to him by the Father, that his death was atonement for their sins, not for those who never come to the faith. God saves those that he plans to save, and Christ died for them, and that's the only way that the atonement could be truly substitutionary. Christ, the just, dying for the unjust, for this purpose, to bring them to God. 
And this is what Peter wrote in 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also has suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. If it's true that Christ died for all people, and there are people, some of them that are now in hell, then his death on the cross wasn't enough to save them, because his death didn't bring them to God. It means that God didn't accept the payment for them because there was something lacking. And the thing lacking is what they didn't do. They were the decision makers, not God. They wouldn't believe. And thus, if heaven is to be filled, it will be filled with those who in their sinfully depraved will and mind made themselves the children of God. And that contradicts John 1, 12 and 13. But as many as received him... To them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Now, if you want to know the doctrine of depravity and of man's inability, of God's sovereignty, of God's electing grace, of Christ's substitutionary sacrifice for sin, of the particular atonement of Christ, of the Holy Spirit's secret effectual work of regeneration, of preservation and perseverance of every believer in Christ, well, a very good place to go is to read the Gospel of John. Hypothetical substitution can't work. It's not an old path. It's not the Bible's path. The scriptures are against it from cover to cover. And so why do we emphasize redemption accomplished and applied to God's chosen people? Because that's the only way that God gets all the glory for our salvation. The Old Testament teaches this. Jesus taught it. The apostles taught it. The true church has held to it. Our Baptist forefathers believed it. It's an old, fa old path that... that if we are to be faithful, we must walk in it. But there is more, and I want to go a little further. Not only are there doctrines that declare God, but there are doctrines that declare man. What, what about the state of human beings? What happens to us? Is this life all there is? Well, no. There is, fourthly, the path of deliverance. The path of deliverance. Declaration of the inspired word of God, the deity of Jesus Christ, the death of Christ, and now the path of deliverance. This is deliverance from sin in this life and the life to come. And principally, this is the result of the doctrine of the resurrection. Now, the scriptures teach in numerous places the resurrection of Christ is essential for our deliverance. Christ died and he arose. So not only was Jesus a man that died, but he is the God-man that by his own power arose from the dead. And because he arose, we will be glorified with him. Liberal theologians reject the resurrection of Christ. They don't believe it's a necessary doctrine. And I haven't time to discuss their convoluted schemes in which they try to get around the scriptures. So we don't need to talk about how Jesus may have fainted on the cross and was revived by the coolness of the tomb. We don't need to go into theories of a stolen body. And we don't need to talk about metaphors and dance around the issue. I can tell you that it is an essential doctrine because the inspired 
writers of Scripture said that it is essential. The one who gave us the inspired Scriptures, the living Word, Jesus Christ, said it is essential. Now, before we go to the definitive chapter on the resurrection, I'd like for us to look at one of Jesus' statements concerning it. If we would go to the book of John, chapter 12, and we'll read a few scriptures here. And if you want to cross-reference this to others, I would encourage you to do that. But I, I'm going to let this passage stand as representative of Jesus' teachings on the resurrection. Now, if you look in... Uh, John 12, beginning in verse number 23. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it. And he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The people, therefore, that stood by and heard it said that it thundered. Others said an angel spake to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of the world be cast out. And I... If I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. Now, the last verse establishes the context of the whole passage. This is about his death. He said that he would die. And to that we all agree. All men die. But then look at verse 24 again. Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Now, the context of the passage, as we've seen, is Christ's death. And so this corn of wheat refers to his death. And his death was different from others because his death brings forth new life. And the analogy that he used is a grain of wheat that is planted in the ground. And from that grain, much fruit will come. Now, if we, we could go to Romans chapter 6, let's turn there. And we see how that planting refers to death and bringing forth fruit refers to the resurrection. In Romans chapter 6 and in verse number 3. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now, verse 5, for if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection in verse eight. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. 
Now, these verses establish that because of our faith in Christ's death and resurrection, we will be resurrected as Christ was resurrected. Now, I just wanted to show you this so we would know that Christ's resurrection is a guarantee of ours. But that doesn't yet tell us the essential nature of Christ's resurrection. Perhaps it's possible that we could live again by some other means. Well, not according to the Apostle Paul. Now we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where there is the most complete explanation of the essential nature of the resurrection found in Scripture. Now, the whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 15 is a great chapter. We're just going to look at a very, very small part. In the preceding verses before this that I'll read, Paul addresses the erroneous doctrine that some were teaching about the resurrection. They said, there is no resurrection. Now, in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 16, For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, and ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Now, you can believe all you want that the resurrection wasn't necessary, but Paul states it very clearly that it is an essential doctrine of our faith. He says, if Christ is not raised, your faith is vain. That means no good. It's no account. It's worthless. And then he says, you're still in your sins. So if there is no resurrection, it means there is no forgiveness of sin because the gospel isn't complete without the resurrection. Now, the death of Christ is good. It certainly is. But if Christ is still in the tomb, God is dead. Now, do you see how doctrine ties together? If you back up to the deity of Christ and Christ is God and if Christ did not arise, then God is dead. And if he remains dead, he is not deity. The atonement doesn't work. If he didn't arise from the dead, none of this works. Now, the foundational building blocks of the faith are just that. They are foundational. And when you tear out the foundation, the building can't stand. Our faith crumbles. Our faith is a waste of time. And so when preachers rip out the inspiration of Scripture and when they deny the deity of Christ and they take away the atonement and when they allegorize the resurrection to a story about smelling roses and picking, picking daisies, then you have no Christianity. The resurrection of Christ is essential because it is our deliverance from this world into the glories of the living Christ. Job asked, if a man dies, shall he live again? Thousands of years before the Gospel of John recorded the resurrection of Christ, Job said, I know my Redeemer lives and he will stand at the latter day upon this earth. And so Job knew because Christ, his God, lives, that he would rise to live again. Well, this brings us to the last doctrine. Number five is the path of destiny. Number five is the old path of destiny. And this is tied to the essential doctrine of the second coming of Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming back to this earth. Now, there are many things that we could talk about concerning the second coming. We are in a study of first and second Thessalonians, which I hope that we'll resume before much longer. 
And there's a lot of information in those many sermons that we've talked about concerning the second coming. There is a kingdom coming. The saints are coming. There's a new heaven and a new earth coming. And mixed into this reality of destiny is the judgment that is coming. There's so many implications that are found in the second coming of Christ. The hope of believers is the second coming. It's called the blessed hope. The resurrection of our bodies is part of the second coming. It's our glorification at the return of Christ. Paul said that we are predestined and called and justified and glorified. And so if our predestination is true and our calling is true and our justification is true, then the glorification must also be true. John said in 1 John 3, verse 2, Beloved, now we are the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now, he is speaking of our glorification. He's, he's talking about being glorified in the body, and for that to happen, Christ must return. Now, look at how all this ties together again. No deity, no atonement. If there is no resurrection, God is dead. And again, no atonement. If there is no resurrection, he can't come back. And thus there is no glorification. The doctrines of God's word are intertwined so that to deny one is to deny them all. Well, there is so much more to say, but let me focus on this as we finish. The judgment. Christ is coming back to judge. And if he doesn't return... There is no judgment. Now, if everything that we've said before is true and the Bible is true, then yes, there is a judgment. And you had better have all the other information correct because it will affect your destiny at the judgment. Now we go back to the book of John once again, this time to chapter five. The Gospel of John is one of the most important books of the Bible. It is the clearest on the Gospel, the easiest to understand on many important doctrines. Now we look at verse number 24 of John 5. Verily, verily, I say unto you, this is Jesus speaking, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself, and hath given him authority to execute judgment also. Because he is the son of man. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming, in the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice, and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. When do all who are in the graves hear his voice? Now, if you want to hear something funny, I was looking at this uh, Scriptures I studied and I asked this question. I, I read this question out loud. When do all the gray in the graves hear his voice? Well, I have one of these little uh, Amazon Alexa things that sits on my desk. And Alexa heard me ask this question. And this is true. Alexa says, hmm, let me think. 
According to John 5:28, the hour is coming when all in the graves will hear his voice. Alexa knows about the second coming. When he comes, the saved will hear his voice and go to their judgment. Now, that's the first resurrection. That covers those who have died, believing from the time of Adam to the end of the tribulation. And this is explained in Revelation 20, verse 6. It's called the first resurrection. That is the resurrection of all believers. Then after the tribulation, after Christ establishes his kingdom on earth, and when the kingdom age is over, he will raise all and judge all who did not believe. Now, that first resurrection, that's for the saved. At their judgment, they will be rewarded for their service to Christ. They're not judged for sin because all of their sins were taken care of in the atonement, and Christ made satisfaction for all of their sins to God. So that's taken care of. But then there is this second judgment. Christ is coming, and he will judge the world in righteousness. It's essential to our faith that Christ should come back. Now, if we believe all the other fundamentals of the faith, this must follow. If we believe the inspired words of Scripture, then we must believe that there is a heaven for the redeemed and there is a hell for the reprobate. Now, let me add one more piece before I finish. If we believe there is a literal heaven, then we must believe there is a literal hell. If heaven is eternal... Hell is eternal because the same language is used for both. If we affirm one and deny the other, then it makes the language of the Bible meaningless. It affects the atonement of Christ. It devalues the atonement of Christ. If the fires of hell are finite, then the sufferings of Christ were finite. If hell is not eternal, then in effect it means that you could suffer enough in hell to pay for your sins. Finite punishment is a finite solution. So you, you would go to hell and someday hope to be released because you paid your debt to God. Well, doesn't that affect the value of the atonement? Oh, the richness of the atonement is that it did what we could never do. Christ suffered infinite punishment on the cross because the hell, the fires of hell are infinite. There's no annihilation in hell. There's no escape from hell. And so before a person dies, he must believe in Christ or suffer infinitely in the fires of hell. Why? Because you could never suffer enough to pay for your sins. Only Christ can pay for sin. Now, one day God will call everyone out of their graves. As it says in John 5, some will come forth to everlasting life, others to everlasting destruction. The question is, which of those is your destiny? Well, that depends on what you believe about the essential doctrines of the faith. These all stand together or they fall together. These are essentials of the faith. And so these are the paths that we must walk. This is, thus saith the Lord, declaration, deity, death, deliverance, and destiny. You destroy one of these and you destroy them all. And so we must stand on these doctrines. They aren't politically correct, we know. They irritate, they are rejected, they're never approved by the self-approving masses. But though the world hates these doctrines, these are the doctrines that bring unity to the church of God. And so we must stand on all of them without compromise. If we are to be the church of Jesus Christ, the church of the living God, 
These, these must be the doctrines of our faith. Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for what we read there, these essential doctrines that are explained to us and told to us so that we would believe and have eternal life in Jesus Christ. Now we encourage those who hear the message today to be sure of where they are going when they die. And the only way to be sure of this is to examine whether they are in the faith, to examine are these the doctrines that they hold? Is this what they believe? Because these are essentials that must be believed before any soul can go to heaven. Lord, we just pray that you speak to hearts today. Uh, Christians who have heard the message today, we have mostly just reaffirmed what we believe. And now we would hope that every Christian would remember these and, and tell others about them and show them how essential these things are. We can't bypass this and hope that we would ever see our God in heaven. So Lord, we pray that you bless us, uh, strengthen us in your will and in your way. May these be the paths that we walk and we never forsake them, never turn away from them. And then, Lord, we pray for our country today. We ask that, uh, as we said in the very, very beginning, hopefully this virus will end soon, uh, that all the measures will be taken and you will show people what to do and lay it upon our hearts what to do and give doctors the wisdom that they need. And, Lord, just work in it so the church can be back together again, worshiping you in one place, and then expanding on into other times of worship so that we can fulfill that full complement of the faith that uh, we can learn more about you. Thank you, Father, for all that you do for us. Bless your people. Help us to stand on your word and your ways. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And now, having come to the end of our time together today, I'd like to give you a benediction from God's Word. And this comes from Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, uh, beginning in verse number 12 and going down to verse number 15. Here the apostle says, Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, Humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also you're called in one body. And be ye thankful. The Lord bless you and keep you. Stay safe and we hope to see you soon. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Brian Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roner Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.